This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Kara Warner. Hello. We have a lot to talk about to the point that last week I said we would get into talking about spring TV. We will eventually, but I just don't think we've got the time for it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Please enjoy your TV shows. Speculate on what will have Emmy buzz. We'll get there eventually, I promise. But it's award season. Of course, we've got too much to talk about. The BAFTA Awards happened this past weekend. None of us were there. Our uh, international tickets got lost in the mail, apparently. Um, (laughs) But we watched them. We want to talk about the winners and then look ahead to the SAG Awards, which are this coming weekend and may or may not mirror the winners at BAFTA. We watched all of the shorts again. We're going to talk about the short films, one of my favorite things that we do all year. Um, but before we get into that, into that award season stuff, or I guess looking ahead to next year's award season, because Richard, <laughs> you've been back to Arrakis. You've seen Dune 2. Yeah. And the buzz on this is really good. The social reactions have been up. By the time you hear this, uh, Richard Jovi will be live. And it sounds like even for the people who weren't as sold the first time around, it really delivers. I was one of those people. I mm-hmm. I was an early not a Dune hater by any means, but a Dune sort of meher. <laughs> Did you was your the headline on your review Dune gets lost in space? Am yeah, I remembering? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Woo! I'm sure that was very popular. No, and I realized I'd use that headline for a different space review movie, <laughs> movie review like a couple years prior. Whoops! Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think obviously it's Denis Villeneuve and he makes beautiful, eye-popping films that have, you know, incredible soundscapes and, you know, and that that was all there in abundance in the first movie. But because it was bifurcated, you know, it was part one, which was not really advertised before people started seeing it. Yeah. I was like, felt a little bit like unsatisfied by the movie. I thought it was a lot of style and no substance. Um, this second part, though, really gets into the meat of the story that was set up by the first film. And um, while the surprise of the visuals and the landscapes and all that um, it has worn off a little bit, I was really much more engaged in the narrative and figuring out why each character is sort of like positioned the way they are and what all this prophecy is and all that. There's still stuff that I was confused by. I have not read the books. I apologize. But all told, I found that it was like, you know, it feels long, but in a good way. It feels like a really big epic, like reading a satisfying novel. And um, for that, I appreciated it. It does maybe set up for future Dune films that I believe Villeneuve has said he he could make eventually, but he wants a break. But it also stands alone as like a conclusion to this two-part uh, series. 
That's interesting because I feel like I'd heard that it was kind of an unexpected cliffhanger, much like the first one was. But it seems like this one's a little bit more settled. Yeah, I mean, it's a cliffhanger in that it says, like, these characters, their story continues. But if you were just, you know, interested in this particular dynastic power struggle between House Atreides and House Harkonnen and, you know, the Spice and the Fremen and all that, that it's not fully resolved. But, like, there is a kind of conclusion of the chapter, at least. And I feel I felt satisfied by that. Maybe other people won't. Does the addition of Zendaya properly or Austin Butler or Florence P or any of the new people, does, does any any of those performances feel like it's what's really elevating it this time? Yeah, I mean, Florence Pugh doesn't have as much to do as I'd hoped. Um, she does narrate some things. So you you hear her voice more than you see her, maybe. And, you know, Zendaya, like, kind of just shows up at the very end of the first film. I mean, she's in some sort of, like, dream sequences, but, like, this she's really, like, present for, and she gets to do action stuff. And I think she really, like, holds her own against, like, the huge scope of this film. I mean, she's not a stranger to it. She's been in Spider-Man movies and stuff. But, but no, she's really good. Um, for me, the one that I kind of rolled my eyes at when I saw the trailer and some of the first looks was Austin Butler yet again doing some sort of, like, crazy transformation in a different voice. <laughs> um, but I think he's really excellent in the movie. Um, like he, he plays That's so exciting. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like it's a it's a really good. I mean, I haven't seen the bike riders, but like this is for me, his kind of follow up to Elvis. Well, I guess you could count Masters of the Air, whatever. So he's done some stuff, but like a big transformative movie role. Uh, it really works. He's doing the most eerily spot on Stellan Skarsgård impression because he plays his Ooh, nephew. Yeah. Um, and it's like. I, I guess that Austin Butler doesn't really have his own voice anymore. He just now no, <laughs> he no. does not <laughs> imitate other people, which is fine. He's really good at it. So I thought he was a really like compelling villain who, you know, look, I'm only human, even with, you know, the pale white makeup and you know, all that stuff. He still looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> He's great in the bike riders too. It's, it's a very different, um, it's a very different kind of thing for him. Cause it's not what you're talking about. He's, he has to do very little, and he exudes this um, kind of unbelievable movie stardom in that movie in a way that made me feel like, yes, he will be he will be around for a while. Yeah, he has it. And it's interesting to have him paired in this movie with these two other young stars, Timothy Chalamet and Dea, who are like also being looked at as the great movie stars among the great movie star hopes of a new generation. Right. And I think they all do a really good job in, in this movie. Um, I wonder about its awards chances. I mean, again, like I said, like the sort of shock, the surprise of what Villeneuve had crafted it has passed because we've already seen the first film and I and this is more just like a chunky like almost action war movie um, where the other one was much more about establishing place and mood and all that stuff so I, I wonder dreams and costumes yeah yeah I mean look all of that stuff is in abundance in this film but I just wonder if the academy will be as like enraptured by it the second time around I was thinking about what would have happened if they did release it you know as planned in October because they already had, Warner Brothers already had a lot on their plate with um, oh, yeah. Barbie and then Color Purple and Wonka, um, neither of which went very far with the Academy, but they certainly got campaigns, especially the Color Purple. So it could have been a lot. So maybe the extra runway will help it. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you want to talk about craft Oscars for next year? <laughs> <laughs> How confident yeah. are you feeling? <laughs> I mean, look, you know, sound, cinematography, costuming. Uh, no, oh, Richard. No, no, no. That's all Madam Webb. You need to. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that we talked about you or you guys talked. I, I loved your the episode about the best casting Oscar, but you didn't talk about the best worm category that they added. And <laughs> oh, I really feel it's like true. It's true. that Dune could could be a strong contender there. We don't know, you know, what. um you know, Blitz, the Saoirse Ronan movie, if there are any worms in that. You know, I, don't, I don't know. But <laughs> Best creature well, category. I'm here for it. You know, we're yeah. trying to find a branch governor and they're they're stuck in the sand. It's, it's, it's just, a bit hard. Oh, it's like Rick nice. Baker and two other people like <laughs> doing Best Creature. I mean, MTV Movie Awards is going to have a Best Popcorn Bucket Award this year. And I think it's a <laughs> runaway for Dune. Oh, God, that's right. I forgot about that. Um, you do see a lot more of the sandworms in this one. So if people thought that they mm. were shortchanged on that in the first film... Don't worry. I mean, they were pretty, pretty thrilling the first time around. So that's very promising. Yep. You get a Mad Max Fury Road-esque sandstorm. I mean, you know, the, the, he really like if if possible, because the first movie is pretty big. Villeneuve really turns up the volume on this one. 
Uh, God, you mentioning uh, Mad Max just made me realize that, you know, thinking about like Warner Brothers and coming into next year's Oscars with like a big effects contender. You know, they have Barbie this year, the big blockbuster, but they got Furiosa like two months mm-hmm. later. You know, I don't I think it might not be fair to Furiosa to be like, yeah, we'll have the same Oscar trajectory as Mad Max because that was so unlikely. But that will be a very interesting um, process for them if both of them really pan out. And the, the scuttlebutt is that because it's a George Miller film and it's coming out at the right time, it'll that Furiosa will likely premiere at Cannes. But right. we'll see. That, oh. that, feels, that feels very plausible to me. I can't wait for that. It's exciting to have like early March movies to talk about. You know, I think there's been stuff out there. But for us who've seen, you know, the Oscar contenders months and months and months ago, it, it kind of feels like the calendar at long last is turning over again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that Dune, you know, feels big enough as like a real proper kickoff to the next season of movies, I guess. Yeah. 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 The early spring blockbuster um, method that, you know, Fast and Furious was like the one for such a long time. I wonder if maybe we'll go somewhere more interesting now. And 300. It's been a a rough January, February, too. So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Yeah, My Madam Web screening on Friday. um, There were other people there, which shocked me, (laughs) but um, not not the hottest ticket in town. Someone at a party this week, past weekend, like asked me, like, you know, what's good? At, what, what should I see? And I was like, uh. <laughs> um, have you seen Perfect Days? Yeah, yeah well, right, exactly. Like I was like Mads Mikkelsen's, you know, period piece <laughs> film. Let's get back in business out there, guys. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Um, David, you were on BAFTA duty to some extent for us this weekend. Um, they were uh, happening live in the UK. They're not as easy to watch live in the US um, for various reasons. Maybe someday we can fix that. But uh, you were keeping an eye on it and wrote about it for us on Sunday where um, Oppenheimer won a bunch of stuff, which you could have written hours before the show. I think we all knew that would happen. Um, but there are some interesting stories coming out of it all the same, um, kind of beyond that, which I was really intrigued by. What what caught your attention the most from these BAFTA winners? The most uh, surprising win was American Fiction for Best Adapted Screenplay, um, which I had already considered a pretty strong contender for the equivalent Oscar. But in that category, you had movies like The Zone of Interest, Poor Things, Oppenheimer, all of which won multiple other BAFTAs, uh, and All of Us Strangers. All four of those movies made the BAFTA long list for Best Film. American Fiction, this was its only nomination with BAFTA. It was not long-listed for Best Film, even, and it, for reasons we talked about last week, the BAFTAs can be um, a bit tough on a certain kind of American film. Yeah. So I think it's quite notable that it beat all those movies out, which the group ostensibly liked more, because much like the Oscars, you have the branches voting for the nominees and the whole membership voting for the winners, which is why they can be a useful barometer. And... This clearly rose to the top of that pack. Um, Do you think that there was something like what we've been talking about with Barbie, where the lack of nominations kind of created a, a, a wave toward giving it something? Does that work at the BAFTAs? I don't think so. I mean, it's certainly possible. The movie came out very recently in the UK. I would imagine because it's a an American indie um, with a largely black cast, um, it was maybe a bit more difficult just for some of that membership to seek it out. And clearly they finally did, and they liked the movie a lot. Um, as we've talked about, it is it has a, a really canny ability to play to a wide range of audiences mm-hmm. um, that people who the joke is on can feel in on the joke, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that helped it a lot, just the fact that it was finally seen more widely there, because I suspect that was a big part of the problem. 
but yeah, coming off off of that, I feel like it's a very strong contender to win that Oscar now. Um, the only difference in the chemistry of that race is that Barbie competed as an original screenplay with the BAFTAs, as uh, the campaign so wished. The Academy forced it into Adapted, and as we've talked about, it has some momentum there as well. Not to derail talking about BAFTAs, because I do want to talk about other winners, but that Adapted screenplay thought is fascinating to me, David, because I think and it might not have been you, it might have been someone else who saw American Fiction win and was like, okay, there we go, that's the Oscars. But I feel like the Barbie factor is so huge at the Oscars. And American Fiction is now certainly stronger, but I'm not sure it changes my conviction that this is where Barbie is going to run away with it. Yeah, I, I remain pretty skeptical about Barbie for the Oscars. I think the fact that it didn't win any BAFTAs, um, again, the BAFTAs do not correspond with the Oscars. They have their own tastes. But they do signal momentum, and that's been the one thing we've really been tracking for Barbie is how much momentum has this movie gained off of the – I'm not going to call them snubs, but um, (laughs) the Oscar omissions. Um, And it it lost production design and costume to poor things at the BAFTAs. Uh, It also lost um, with art director. So it's it's kind of – it's in a tough spot, I think – to win anything other than song right now. And I, I haven't quite seen evidence that it is surging in a way where it would beat American fiction in a race where it's such a clear writerly movie. It's clearly being embraced. And, you know, that win to me reminded me of Coda winning adapted screenplay a few years ago uh, at BAFTAs. It wasn't even nominated for best picture there, but it was kind of the first time that someone other than its actress had been recognized. And it was like, Oh, Something's happening here. And of course, it went on to win PGA and then the Oscar. I'm not saying American Fiction's winning Best Picture, but it did remind me of a similar sort of something is happening here. Yeah. And and, and like, you know, you could look to America Ferreira getting that somewhat surprise Oscar nomination and be like, OK, so it has more support than we thought. But then Margot Robbie didn't get in at the Oscars. And I just feel like with Barbie, there might be a sort of fomenting sentiment that like, hasn't that movie gotten enough? Everyone who made it got so rich. Like, it's been talked about for, you know, eight months or however long it's, you know, like longer than that, you know, from trailers on, it's been in the cultural consciousness for like a year plus. Um, Whereas American Fiction is a movie that Academy voters uh, or maybe even BAFTA voters like felt like that they were kind of either discovering something or bringing it to a larger audience by giving it a big award. And it it sort of, re, you know, clarifies these voting bodies mission to sort of highlight film, you know, Barbie doesn't need any more highlighting, you know, m- might be the thought. So I don't know, I kind of think that that's there's some of that psychology in play where they clearly the Academy clearly likes American fiction and will want to give it something. And Barbie might they might feel has gotten a lot already. Right. Although I just feel like this, the sentiment for Greta and Noah is still pretty strong. Yeah, maybe. Yes. I, that's, I what I, so. that's what I keep thinking is like who, when the voters are, you know, making their selections, like how do you decide between Cord Jefferson and Greta and Noah? Well, Greta Gerwig doesn't have an Oscar, which I think is like not, yeah. you know, she's barely 40. Like, it's not a crazy thing. But I do think, like, given her track record that she has had with her first three movies, like, it is, it does kind of start to feel a little crazy. Like, she didn't win for the screenplay for Lady Bird, which I think was very much an American fiction kind of thing. Like, fresh new voice, made their first film. We're so excited. Like, but um, it was the same year as Get Out, and Jordan Peele took that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like it's the Academy has been rude to her exactly. Um yeah. But I think she's overdue in a way where Cord Jefferson is like, again, the fresh and new exciting person who we can assume might be back. But again, sorry, I keep right. contradicting yeah, myself. The point. fresh and new exciting voice wins the screenplay Oscar a lot. That is a familiar pattern here. Yeah. 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 It's 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 moving. That race has definitely taken a new shape. And Barbie just adds some complexity to it because it hasn't been competing and adapted anywhere else. So that's kind of an unknown factor. I don't know who I would predict to win at this point. If you're participating in our Oscar pool, which, by the way, we're still adding people, so uh, keep an eye on your inbox, uh, and you've already made your ballot choices, I envy you, because I don't know where I want to go on this one. <laughs> yeah. It's way too early to be making those choices, folks. You know. Oh, I mean, you know what? <laughs> Maybe it's not. Maybe Because usually, you know, we talk ourselves in circles around the shorts and think we know what we're doing and get them all wrong. So go with your gut. <laughs> Do whatever works for you. Um, if If I could say one thing maybe more broadly about American fiction winning and the overall shape of the BAFTAs, 
One thing I I noticed is it's almost too strong of a year for any challenger to emerge to Oppenheimer because every every movie that you might think is going to take that spot as like the runner up that's surging they all get a little something. Anatomy yeah. of a Fall wins original screenplay. The Holdovers wins an acting award, also wins casting. There's a lot of support for that movie. Um, Poor Things wins a lot, um, but it misses also in some categories. Um, it just it feels like there's a lot of affection for a lot of movies, and then you have this juggernaut that probably because of that can't really be taken out. Yeah, they're too busy fighting for second place, you know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Or do so many people think it's going to win anyway that they vote differently? But for too many movies. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah there's there's no um, there's no coda to Power of the Dog, right? Like, it's so yeah. spread around. Spotlight the, to Revenant, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. And Oppenheimer is stronger than... I would say all of those movies from the yep. recent examples of like the big movie. You know, I, I think I meant to say this last week, but didn't. But like, if it was Maestro, if Maestro was in the top position that Oppenheimer was, if Oppenheimer didn't exist, I think it'd be a really different scenario. Uh, well, to talk about Oppenheimer, David, it did win. Let's see, picture, director, actor, score, cinematography, editing, editing, cinematography. Yes, it kind of supporting split the actor. Crafts. Supporting actor, yes, indeed. Um, it had like the exact night that we would have expected it to. Um, so I guess not a huge surprise, but does the strength of it at BAFTA just double, triple cement what's going to happen at the Oscars? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's all there is to say on that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. mean, Kill- Killian Murphy winning at BAFTA over Paul Giamatti was not a surprise, right? Right. Right. Um, but I don't know that that necessarily says that Giamatti... I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like that split feels likely to me. You know, the Giamatti ends up winning uh, the Oscar and Murphy takes the BAFTA. But, um, you know, because those categories don't always line up. I mean, we, we, sh- we can talk about um, Best Actress at some point, but like um, they are predictive in some ways, but also not predictive in others. So we're I mean, at least I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> they, they can get everything. Um, they can pick everything differently or they can pick everything the same. They've done both. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, last year, they had completely different choices from the Oscars above the line, in, yeah. in meaning every single category. And then I think it was the Nomadland year, which was only a few years before that, everything above the line was the same. So it can veer one way or the other, but it's it, it, there's a way to look at it where you can maybe identify, okay, they don't like this movie as much as the Oscars do, Everything Everywhere All at Once, for instance. Or, um, yeah, this is a place where Killian Murphy will... Uh, even the score with Paul Giamatti, um, that not might not necessarily translate to the Oscars. I do think that race is very close, though. Yeah, and we'll talk about SAG in a little bit and how that might potentially swing that pendulum once more. Um, we talked last week about the supporting categories, about how Robert Downey Jr. or Dave Joy Randolph could lose at BAFTA and yet still be lost for the Oscars. <laughs> and now they're double, triple cemented for the Oscars, um, which is not a huge surprise. But, you know, good for them for just... Uh, getting up on that stage over and over again and making it all sound fresh every time. I know that we something like this has happened before, but it's somewhat rare for someone like... that. The, the Dave Vine Joy Randolph has won, like, almost every precursor, right? It's yeah. pretty remarkable. Like, I mean, I, I want to say that Octavia Spencer had a similar run for The Help. Yeah. But even then... There was more. There was some cloudiness there with Jessica Chastain winning a lot of critics' prizes because she had all those movies that same year. Right. This has just been an unstoppable train. I mean, she does not lose anywhere, and she will not lose anywhere. I I will put that on the record. It's pretty incredible. Um, and I I, I saw her in a room. I, I had moderated a Q and A with them, and she's unbelievable. She's unbelievable. So that's a small reason why. Um, but she really is just an unbelievable presence on the trail as well. Her speeches have been really good, you know. Yep. And um, mm-hmm. I think Downey Jr.'s speeches have been good as well, you know, which counts very for, Brad Pitt esque. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which is a good tone for an older sort of more like Hollywood commercial actor to take at these things, humbled, but also like, yeah, like it's time, you know, like a kind of a really smart mix of that. Whereas Davine has been like, yes, I'm newer to the scene, but like, you know, I'm very poised and like, I belong here, you know, like, I think she's been really good about about that, that a similar mix of humility and also like kind of confidence in a way. I'm going to be honest, watching that little YouTube clip of her crying, calling out Paul Giamatti was crying, got me crying a little bit. I was like, this is really lovely. Yeah. 
Is this what Laura Dern did for Marriage Story? I'm trying because I feel like supporting actress does this sometimes. Like you just have an actress who everyone has been fond of from something or another for a long time. Like sometimes they're more veterans like Laura Dern or Allison Janney or like Lupita Nyong'o was a newcomer, but just kind of ran away with it. Um, I, I feel like they're like these sweeps can happen in this category more than most. And I don't totally know why. Lupita Nyong'o lost both BAFTA and The Globe to Jennifer Lawrence for American Hustle. I will remind well, you. <laughs> well, let's see. This is why we need you here to fact check me in real time. That was a, that was a weird uh, dual race that probably shouldn't have been as uh, competitive as it was, but it mm-hmm. went right in the end. What was Anne Hathaway's track? Oh, that was quite that was quite a, quite a steamroll, yeah, for Les Mis. Um, There's a movie called American Hustle? What? <laughs> You know, Richard got four acting nominations. I love that movie. They did, in fact, get over on all those guys. (laughs) (laughs) They did. Um, I think, yeah, I think to Richard's point, it's it's somewhat different when it is an actress like Dave and J. Randolph, who's never even been in the race before. Yeah, like Laura Dern or Anne Hathaway had been nominated before. And and those were a little bit clear cut where people, you know, in pre-screenings at festivals saw that movie and was like, okay, their time is here and they will win. In both of those actresses' cases, it was very much like the one scene rule too. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is like, it's nice to see. It's nice to see an actress who's been really great for a number of years in this industry get to be in the kind of movie that would allow for this kind of campaign and run uh, and see the industry just completely embrace it. I think it's very deserved, and um, I do not think she will be stopped. Um, t- we were talking about the Oppenheimer craft wins and how Poor Things basically took the other half of the pie there. Um, I mean, the Poor Things has a ton of nominations. It is in kind of a tight race for basically all of them. We've talked about Emma Stone a lot. We can talk about her BAFTA win if we want to. Um, it does make me wonder if it is stronger against Barbie in a lot of those craft categories, like makeup and hair and costume and production design um, than it's giving it credit for. Or is this just a Euro on Euro bias and Barbie will win out in America? So Barbie also lost the Guild for Production Design Art Direction here in the U.S. to Poor Things. There is a part of me that still thinks that Barbie will be really strong there. I think that there's been a really good campaign for that part of the movie. It's such an obvious strength of the movie. The design is incredible. So I hope I honestly hope that Barbie can pull it out there. Um, It feels like the place that it can win outside of song at this point. Um, but yeah, I think your point about Poor Things is really interesting, Katie, because it, to my eye, it could win like five Oscars and it could win zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, Makeup and Hair, I think, is very close with Maestro. Maestro beat it out uh, at the Guild Awards for Makeup and Hair over the weekend. Actress is competitive, which we'll talk more about. Um, and then, yeah, you have these craft categories uh, where it's kind of running up against Barbie. Uh, and I'm not really sure who will win. I just wonder with with the production design. When I saw both Barbie and Poor Things, those were the two top of mind that I was like, oh, these two will be competing for production design. I just wonder if there is a little bit of snobbery at play, right? Um, Mm -hmm. With comparing the two, um, despite the brilliance of both. The inevitable dynamic in a lot of these below the line races is they can lean period. They can lead costume drama. And obviously Poor Things is, the furthest thing from your typical period drama. But I think that that is where that kind of snobbery or just that kind of preference comes into play. Barbie is a more, I think, exciting winner in those kinds of races for the Academy and a little bit different for them. Um, But it is a little bit more of a leap than what they usually do. Yeah. I think that I have fact-checked this correctly, is that the record for the most Oscar nominations without a single win is jointly held by The Turning Point and also Steven Spielberg's Color Purple um, with 11, which is how many nominations Mm -hmm. Poor Things has. So if it Mm. wins nothing, it will tie the all-time record, which would be such a strange outcome for such a popular movie. But that's how it works, right? You can be super popular and win nothing, and that's how it goes. Mm Mm-hmm. So as I said, we're going to talk about the SAG Awards, which are happening this weekend, where many of these same actors are nominated. I think we can kind of safely um, earmark Robert Downey Jr. and Dave Andre Randolph's speeches once again. Um, but Richard, you were talking earlier about Paul Giamatti and Killian Murphy. Um, who do you think has the edge at SAG between the two of them? I would say Giamatti, maybe. Me too. Yeah, just because it's uh, the transition from, you know, the BAFTA voters to the SAG voters. Yeah, I think there is a different kind of sentimentality, if you want to call it that for Paul Giamatti in the SAG voting pool. 
Uh, whereas Killian Murphy, a great actor, uh, you know, who has done a lot of good work uh, in his native Ireland, in the UK, in America too, you know, but I just feel like the, the, the slight edge might go to Giamatti just because um, he has worked with a lot of American actors who are the people voting mostly on, on the SAGs um, across television and film. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I, I I agree with Richard. I I expect Paul Giamatti to win uh, on Saturday. I he has won. I'm counting four SAG awards. Wow! He won Best Supporting Actor for Cinderella Man at the SAG Awards. I mean, that was his uh, long overdue <laughs> uh, makeup nomination for Sideways. Yes, I guess it SAG was. probably nominated him for Sideways, so they got it right. They did. He also won for Too Big to Fail in the TV movie, TV movie category. Oh, I don't think he even got, and he don't think he won an Emmy for that. So they they wow. like him. Yeah. I think it's the Jessica Chastain rule a little bit, where this is an actor who's worked with everybody, who is beloved in the community, yeah. uh, and who is getting a showcase part. Um, Chastain even won for George and Tammy with SAG and didn't win anywhere else. And I think Giamatti may be a similar kind of figure with this group. It just feels like the place he would win. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, even if he doesn't win the Oscar, I think that this is where, you know, he will get a moment and we will be talking about this race until Oscar night. Yeah, I think the, you, the goodwill factor is huge in the sense that he's worked mm-hmm. with so many major actors in a supporting role and as part of ensembles that I think yeah. people are really excited to celebrate him. The actor's question... It feels very open to me. I know I keep saying that. Uh, I mean, Emma Stone is the frontrunner at this point. I think it's quite difficult to call Lily Gladstone a frontrunner, just given that she hasn't been nominated by BAFTA. uh, And she didn't win the Critics' Choice Award either, which is a big consensus vote. Um, So this is kind of her last stand, I I would argue. It feels like the Academy did not, because it did not nominate Killers of the Flower Moon in a few place, key places like Best Actor or Screenplay, um, that it's not so hot on it that it would overperform there. That said, I, I think she could win here. She has an obviously great narrative. The campaign has um, kept her front of mind. But Emma Stone is not lost anywhere yet. So maybe this is a little bit simpler than we're um, making it out to be. And I think that when we think of somebody winning two Oscars in relatively quick succession, it feels kind of insane. But it's not that It happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, Mahershala Ali and Chris Faltz both did it in Supporting Actor really fast, which was kind of, like, strange when it was happening and even stranger in retrospect because each of them (laughs) them, (laughs) won the first one for, like, a really great standout role that no one had any problems with. And the second time, you're like, wait, really? Again? We're just going to do this? Um, but like Frances McDormand uh, wins two Best Actress Oscars, her second and third, uh, really close together for performances that, that were just really undeniable, which is in many ways what Emma Stone's important things is. Yeah, I think it's and I, I mean, to her credit, it is a matter of like, is this undeniable? Like mm-hmm. this is uh, there's a ton of love for her and just respect for the performance. And that I wonder- can be enough. How old she is compared to when Jodie Foster won her. I was second. thinking about that. That because yeah. she Jodie also won two pretty close together. She's really close together, and she was. Let's see, she was about thirty when Silence of the Lambs came out. So she might have been Jodie, Jodie Foster might have been younger when she pulled this off. But yeah, it feels like Emma Stone's very young to be a two-time Oscar winner. But that's how the Best Actress category works. Sometimes also, it's a you know start kind of the peak of her powers. Uh, so for SAG, we're going to keep watching those races. Does anyone have a firm prediction for the ensemble category? I think we've talked a lot about how that one can really go its own way. And the color purple is still sitting right there, which we've been talking about a few times. But um, or does it really just come back to come down to Barbie and Oppenheimer? Oh, man. I, I mean, I, I love a surprise. But <laughs> again, I think there could be, you know, for SAG... Even though it's actor's body, we could say there's a little more superficiality with actors. Hey, maybe. Um, <laughs> I would love them to give it to Barbie, but I bet it goes to Oppenheimer. What if American fiction stays on the coda path? I mean, hey, I'm fine with that, that too. That would really, then you would have two weeks of everyone being like, American fiction's going to win best picture in a total yes. surprise. And like, it wouldn't be wrong, right? Like, it could be, a, it's a totally reasonable speculation. We still weren't saying that when Coda did both the BAFTA screenplay and SAG Ensemble. It was starting to be talked about. Um, yeah. I feel like in this case, it would be even harder to jump to that conclusion, even with that backup. But I don't know. Um, 
It is it is one of the movies that you hear the most about. Just, you mm-hmm. know, going from academy room to academy room. There's yeah. a there's there's a wind in its back. I don't know how far that goes. Probably not far enough. Again, the unique factor in this race is Oppenheimer is just huger than most front runners at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that just is typically uh, in this season, been too much for anyone to overtake. And with a bigger cast, I don't know. <laughs> Just like sheer yeah. size of the cast helps them at all, but it's got what, like 85 speaking parts or something like that. It's a, uh, it rides strong. Punish them for not including Alden Ehrenreich or David Krumholtz in look, the nomination. Look, yeah, we've worked hard weird. to move past that. <laughs> We're trying to, <laughs> trying to hide our resentment there. It's not as bad as killers, so no, that's true. No, I hope they get to go anyway. I, I maybe I'll put my chips down on a Barbie win. I feel like it's an incredibly worthy ensemble. It's a yeah. wide voting body. Everyone has seen the movie. SAG isn't as snobby as the Oscars can be. They gave it to Hairspray. Um, yeah, <laughs> why, why not? Oh, I'm going yeah, to say for sure. Yeah. yeah, if they give it to Hairspray, that would be, I mean, listen, I'm going to hope so, for that too. <laughs> I'm I'm just hoping for in general for some sort of like big SAG surprise, you know, yes. like mm-hmm. Emily Blunt winning supporting actress for A Quiet Place or I don't know. I was looking at the um, I was trying to figure out if there's like a Chastain situation that could happen with like, you know, maybe Annette Bedding wins a SAG Ooh, because like that, that, it is, that is the yeah. Jessica Chastain wasn't nominated at Baptist that year because it was that strange year where like I think a very small committee of people did the whole nominations. And so it was kind no, of more. It, it was just none of them made it. It was, was complete. That, there was none of the Oscar nominees were BAFTA nominees. Right, 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 right. So I don't know. Sorry, I was I was kind of gaming that out. I know we're not talking about Best Actress anymore, but. Oh, no, we're always talking about Best Actress. No, yeah. I'm just trying to control yet, myself. So. Yeah, I'm just trying to control myself <laughs> and not bring her up. Every but it is back of mind. Wait, no, David, I, do you want to throw out your Tony Shalhoub theory? Speaking of sack surprises. <laughs> you know what? I would love to. Um, <laughs> though Those listening may not know that the hottest ticket in town is a Tony Shalhoub SAG Q&A. It's unreal. <laughs> uh, a lot of people who want to see him at events, uh, I moderated one, uh, get turned away. This is for Monk's Last Case, a Monk movie, uh, which is the sequel film that aired on Peacock to the series Monk, for which Tony Shalhoub won many Emmys and SAG Awards. Um, and I think he could beat Stephen Yun for a limited actor. He's nominated. Oh, um, Yeah. Sam Elliott won last year, two years ago, for 1983, 1893. <laughs> I'm really, but uh, as a fan of that series, um, and he was not even nominated for the Emmy. So these can go, and Jessica Chastain has mentioned one for George and Tammy. Those can go in their own way. So that's my uh, that's my wild card prediction. I think he will win for that. Our younger listeners probably don't remember that in the what was it, early 2000s or something? There was just a, a, a years where, like, Tony Shalhoub was just, like, <laughs> picking up every award possible yep. for Monk for year after year. And yep. um, it was like Brian Cranston Breaking Bad level. It was just yeah. every award. Like, Tony could not Shalhoub stop winning. won two SAG awards for Monk and then four for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Some of them are ensemble. Never mind. But he did win twice on his own for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I think he won three Emmys individually for Monk. Yeah. Yeah. People just really like voting Shalhoub, you know? So <laughs> it's a fun word to say. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So we're going to close out the show uh, by discussing, as promised, all of the Oscar-nominated shorts. They are probably playing in a theater near you. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot. They're being programmed all over the place. They're making, um, you know, money. Not a ton of money, but it's always nice to see that people are going to see these in the theaters. Um, And a lot of them are available online. We'll kind of try to flag the ones that we're we're talking about where you can find them easily. The animated ones, for some reason, are are the harder ones to find. Um, But I... 
I wanted to start with the live action shorts category, which I think can be one of the most fascinating to discuss for reasons good and bad. It has a little bit of reputation, I guess, maybe among us or maybe other people where um, there there can be a lot of winners that are about something really, really heavy and terrible and in a format that is pretty um, blatant. I think because of the nature of the, you know, the short running time. Um, and this year carries on that tradition and then also goes in all kinds of directions. Um, to start with the positive, though, I had one of these that I just loved and I thought was really terrific. And I'm wondering if you guys agree with me. Night of Fortune made me yep. so happy. Yeah, I love totally. this movie. Beautiful. It felt like it should be a short if that makes sense you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it didn't feel like it was just a sizzle reel for a bigger movie which some of these often do um yes. and i appreciated that it went in little su- surprising directions and all that yeah and i and i think it was just fun seeing something that unlike some of the other nominees in this category i would say a solid three of them wasn't like yeah like you said kind of like almost bordering on psa Mm-hmm. Yes. yes, which is a, a, a strong tradition in this category. You might remember that Riz Ahmed won for a film kind of about like immigration and racism in 2020. There was another one about like police brutality. Um, and I think the closest one this year would be Red, White and Blue, which is about restrictive abortion bans, basically. Um, in For me, very well-meaning, but kind of not well executed, which is often what happens in this category. And again, mm-hmm. you don't yeah. want to like beat up on small films that not a lot of people get to see. But that one felt like very much in in the tradition of the category, which makes me think it might win, um, but yeah. not as successful as some of the other ones. Well, also, it was like a surprise. Oh, that's what this is about? Uh, yeah. Th- that happens That happens <laughs> in a few of these. So. Yeah. <laughs> a twist. I mean, I liked Britney Snow in Red, White, and Blue. Um, yeah, I was too. on the jury at South by last year, and we gave her uh, her directorial debut in a movie called Parachute a, a, an award. So it's interesting seeing Britney Snow kind of do kind of reach for new things in her career. And I thought she was good in the movie, but I I thought the twist as it was presented was a little cheap, maybe. Um, And I understand why they did it because it should be shocking and horrible. It's, I think it's must be loosely inspired by a story from Ohio, but yes. um, Yeah. yeah, I I don't know. It just, it felt a little bit, uh, I struggled. I hate using this word because the the whole point is to manipulate, but it it felt a little manipulative, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think what you learn in watching these shorts sometimes is the really successful ones say a lot without saying anything out loud. Like you can mm. really use symbolism and glances and and quick stuff because you only have people for such a short period of time. And some of these that are really trying to get a message across kind of uh, lean much more on didacticism. Mm-hmm. But get rewarded for it. Um, I still don't know what to make of The After, which is one of two of these shorts that are available on Netflix. The other one being Wes Anderson, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, Because The After has all of the trappings of one of these like big topic movies. But it's just basically like David Oyelowo as a grieving dad. Like and not because he's not grieving because of like some larger social issue. It's just like something horrible happens and then he is sad about it. I I was really horrible. With the music like kind of pummeling you towards. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And And they show the bad thing. In yes. a way that I was like, whoa. So you know? upsetting. Yeah. yeah. Um, to devote a significant portion of your short movie to the bad thing and not the, I don't know, it just felt a little bit like, yeah. And I think there is sort of a social thing, you know, about like knife attacks in London and, and, and all that. But um, that to me very much felt like a sizzle reel for a bigger movie. Yeah. But what? But the bigger movie is about like overcoming grief by driving a car for straight like it, i'm not even sure where it wants us to land at the end of it right well i think it's suggesting an arc that would be flushed out in a, in sure. a longer film but sure right maybe finding yeah that was the first one i watched and i just thought oh are all of these going to be this <laughs> devastating that is a tradition of the shorts as you uh, you're in a bad mood for many of them <laughs> Uh, where'd you guys land on Invincible, um, which is available on Vimeo, uh, as I try to shout out where you can actually watch them. And I believe very based very closely on the, a true story that happened to the director. That one also had a twist because I thought I was watching a French movie, but it's a Canadian movie. Mm, I <laughs> figured it out and I don't remember how. I think like someone I was like, that person doesn't look French. They're in North America. And I was very proud of myself. Yeah, it felt a little distant to me. I don't know. Maybe that's the word. Um, I thought that the acting was really strong, but there was something about it that I just struggled to connect to, which is another um, tradition with some of these live action shorts is they, because of the limits of 
the time frame uh, if you don't use that the medium appropriately. Mm. I think it just can feel a little bit unsatisfying. And this was one where I there was I liked a lot of the elements. I liked the way it was shot. Yeah. Um, but it just felt sort of straightforward in a way where it was hard for me to get on its level. I, I can't remember. Did were we told about the kind of true story at the end or the beginning? I felt like it was at the, at the end. At the right? end, I think. Yeah, because I think yep. not that we need any more direction, but I might have been more invested if I had known that from the jump. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's that's a good point. It is, you know, that's a dark one too. I, beautifully shot. I, I agree with, and I think uh, David, your word is really, really appropriate. Distant because, and maybe if we had had the little based on a true event or dedicated to, I, I definitely think that would have helped me um, be a little bit more invested. It's it's worth flagging too that in a few of these, um, we're being vague because they are sort of dependent on reveals, sure. um, which also can be tougher to pull off in, you know, 15 minutes more or less. Yeah. Um, I guess all this leads to the question of the last short, is Wes Anderson going to finally win an Oscar for The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, which is the last nominee in this category? I don't know. I think he's. I think he's pushing with the whimsy. I love Wes Anderson aesthetic. I. I do. I. I think it's fun that you can kind of escape into, into that world. But I think he's pushing it with this one because, you know, not knowing anything about it going in, just that you know, I was I was sitting down for a Wes Anderson story, and then of course the based on a Roald Dahl um, short story, uh, I believe. I. I definitely was like, well. What is the point? <laughs> yeah. Even though there's an incredible moment, it's not, I don't think it's a spoiler. Uh, my favorite moment is there's Benedict Cumberbatch in drag for a hot second. That mm-hmm. was my favorite little Many little different spin-yet. costumes in a very short yeah. period of time. It's like a pop-up book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think whether or not Henry Sugar wins, it might reveal something interesting about the Academy's psychology. Yes. Oh, because sure. like they've been weird about Wes Anderson for years. Yeah. Um, you know, like not nominating Gene Hackman for um, Tenenbaum, oh, yeah. stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, if Henry Sugar wins, my question would be: Did you just see a famous person's name who's been nominated for Oscars <laughs> before and vote that and say I don't have to watch the other four? That's a really good point. Especially uh, you, you all probably know this category a lot better than I do, but I could see that happening. It's a new kind of dynamic. Like I'm not. I mean, you guys have been doing this longer than I have, but in the years I've done this with you, we've never had to kind of weigh this type of entry that had this full rollout with from a studio premiered at Venice. Um, to competing against a bunch of movies that virtually nobody has seen outside of the Academy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it doesn't win, then I'm like, do they just really hate him? <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be for other reasons. Like, if maybe Night of Fortune wins because it is the most complete, I think, short film in the bunch. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. The Wes Anderson thing really does complicate it. You're right, David. I feel like... This is not the movie that would that wins this category typically. Right. It's just not. Yeah. They like I mean, we usually get it wrong because it's usually a movie we don't like as much. <laughs> For starters, this is a full vision. I mean, that cannot be denied, even yeah. though I, I do agree with Kara. So is it gonna be a more straightforward issue-driven movie? Like I think Red, White, and Blue felt like a winner that was also unsatisfying to me, um, which I'm trying to do better at judging these days. But yeah, there's a huge complicating factor in the fact this has a full campaign. It was very well received. Um, It really was out of Venice. Um, And it's widely seen. The way that the shorts voting works is it's an opt-in kind of thing. So who knows what the makeup of the voting body for these awards is and how much they like this movie and how much they like the other movies, because you do get a high concentration at least of people more earnestly judging the films against one another. Uh, you know what this makes me think of, and it's not quite a one-to-one comparison, but Le Pupil was uh, a kind of our runaway favorite of a live-action mm-hmm. short last year. And it was on Disney+, Plus, and it has Alfonso Cuaron and Liche Vorwacher, who is a major director. Um, and we, I think we all thought it would win. And it lost to a very nice movie about two Irish brothers. Big big year for Ireland last year. I know we talked about that. Yeah. And so, uh, Emotion. Nice. Uh, is it nice? Am I forgetting the plot of this movie? Well, it's, <laughs> I think you're being you're being 
kind, but I'll stop. <laughs> Honestly, I'm trying to like remember the basics of it. Um, but I think um, emotion and sentiment, and it doesn't even have to be like about a big topic. And it can be like more delicate than not. But Le Pupil and Henry Sugar, I think, have in common that they're like really beautifully made. Um, but literally, if they need Le Pupil, they're like, there's no moral to the story. <laughs> That's kind of how Henry Sugar works, too. Right. And I don't know that that wins you over in the end here. Yeah, unless people love... I mean, I, I do like all of the famous actors that like to go play with Wes Anderson, right? Like, that is mm-hmm. fun. Um, so maybe, are they, you know, whoever votes, are they going to be excited to see all the all the people who agreed to do a short? I mean, it's you got to watch it. If you haven't seen Henry Sugar yet, just fire it up. It's a, it's a good 40 minutes to spend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on to the documentary category. Speaking of emotion, um, often this is where you really get your heart ripped out. I remember very vividly the year there was one about like children in an orphanage who'd been affected by Agent Orange and just feeling like such deep despair while watching the short. <laughs> and this year, they're not. These They're about major topics in a lot of cases, like, um, yeah. you know, economic inequality and you know public schools and book banning. But none of them really go for the like, here is this devastating story that will take you up. And uh, right. some of them, or at least one of them, like Nai Nai and Waipo, are delightful in every possible way. Um, it's a really fun set. I think it was my favorite group of any of the, the shorts that we watched. Um, but I feel pretty sure that I know the winner. I think it's going to be The Last Repair Shop. Yep. Okay, good. Yep, 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 yep. Oh. Okay. That Why, is my David? favorite oh. one. That's my favorite one. I'm Wait, glad to hear are you that. guys disagreeing? No, no. I was I... feeling confident about that. <laughs> I would have said Nai Nai and Waipo. Same, same, Richard. Well, he just had a big movie at Sundance, and like his name yes. is kind of in the industry. Uh, Sean Wang did. It's sentimental. It feels distinct, you know, and, and unique. Uh, whereas Last Repair Shop feels a bit packaged to me. But maybe the Academy doesn't care about that. I just think, yeah, the the Nine Nine Wipeout the campaign is really fun and strong. Like they're doing a really great job with. I think the last thing I saw was him showing. Uh, or having the the having nine nine wipo like read the reactions to their short, which is very charming. Um, that they're just doing their own thing, living together, and and oh hi, we people know, people watched us, people like us, which is very cute. And I haven't seen really the campaigns for any of the others. I think with the doc shorts, they tend to like a fuller package narrative, feeling like they've come mm-hmm. away learning something, mm-hmm. which is not. I, I love. I actually really love nine nine wipo and. Um, I think that the challenge for that movie as a can as a contender is it's it's this really whimsically constructed slice of life for these two women um and and the way that they just get up in the morning and um particularly interact with their their grandson uh, when he um, comes to film them. Uh, it's really a sweet uh, and and warm movie. But last repair shop and a few of these others, I think have you know the backing of premise of subject Mm -hmm. of this is a thing that is happening and we are bringing you into this world. And in Last Repair Shop, you meet these really heroic figures as part of an institution here in LA um, who provide um, free instrument like turnips or repairs to uh, for students uh, in the district. And you learn a lot. Uh, These are the sort of last ones, as it says in the title. And it has this nice contrast of meeting these people with hearing the students' stories, the kids' stories um, about its impact. Um, I found it really moving, but I also found it the kind of movie, the kind of story that could very easily be embraced as important by a group of voters. Yeah, you bring up a good point too, because I I did not Google the history of the category because I figured someone here would tell me more about it. <laughs> uh, but I, you you bring you up didn't a great, follow the shorts religiously. Uh, I haven't. <laughs> Sorry, I really haven't. But I think that that's a great point in that nine nine Wipo definitely is is not like the others. Uh, and I, I, hearing a little bit about it beforehand, when I watched it, I thought, oh, that's it, in the sense of it's a beautiful little slice of life instead of a full package, as as you did really well, like, well-described, David. Um, but I, Last Repair Shop, I also, is my favorite, my personal favorite, but I, I loved how they kind of told the story differently than I expected. I thought it might just focus only on the kids, but I loved that you get to meet these very different and differently motivated um, people who do the repairs. 
Well, and speaking of the history of the category, it's directed by uh, Ben Proudfoot and Chris Bowers, who were nominated together in 2020 for a film that didn't win. Um, but Ben Proudfoot won on his own for Queen of Basketball. So they're kind of um, mm. heavyweights in the documentary short category. Um, and I also think there's a there's a tendency for L.A. movies to do really yeah, totally. well here. Oh. Um, there's this really odd winner a while ago, Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405, about an artist in L.A. Uh, there was one a few years before that that was like kind of funded as a part of a project from an L.A. private school. Um, and so, you know, Chris Bowers and Ben Proudfoot know a lot of people. And then I'm watching it. And I kind of was like, all right, like the emotions, like everyone has their heartrending story. And then, man, they put together that orchestra at the end and they have all these graduates of the LA school system yes. identifying by their class year. And this like this beautiful music that Chris Bowers composed. And it got me. So it's really kind of like weapons grade uh, emotional impact <laughs> yeah. for anybody, which is why I think it will win. I think Barber of Little Rock, too, is my second. That was my second favorite, I think. It's, That's a really good one. Some of those documentary subjects always make me feel especially lazy about what I'm doing with my <laughs> free time and my, you know, efforts to to try and uh, shape the world in better ways. So that one, I think, is is beautifully done and could motivate other people to kind of adopt what this wonderful man is doing, trying to help, you know, people get a leg up. I, I was just going to say that you know, the LA-ness of it all, the insider-ness of it all, means that we should probably bring up ABCs of book banning because yes. it is mm-hmm. co-directed by Sheila Nevins, who is the longtime right. head of HBO Documentaries, a huge player in the world of documentaries, mm-hmm. um, very known in the industry. The movie is, I thought, kind of cloying, but, um, <laughs> you know, about a worthy subject about Florida yes. book bans in schools, but like... I don't know. I just feel like, again, depending on the psychology of voters, like, oh, Sheila's nominated. I'll vote for her. You know? Sure. Yeah. I'm surprised it got in. Um, It's so straightforward um, in a way that I feel like they usually try to avoid. Um, So that may be telling. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Those kids are really fun, though. I loved all those interviews with these uh, sassy kids. Yeah, the kids are great. Yeah. As in the last... The Last Repair Shop shoe, too. I love the kids in that one. But I thought The Last Repair Shop also looked great. You know, it was really nicely filmed. And this one, it was fine. Yeah. Uh, Island in Between is the last one we haven't talked about. It's a, it's a little bit odd movie. It's very personal. It's kind of quiet. It's yeah. taking a lens on um, China, uh, Taiwan and China and the relationship between the two of them. It's produced by the New York Times, um, which has a kind of strong history in this category. Um, but I, I wouldn't call I wouldn't imagine it too much of a threat for a win for all the reasons I just said. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I definitely learned. Right. I, I did not know some of the nuance there, but um, I also kind of was left a little question mark like, oh, what is it really about? Yeah. I want to see that full documentary. Yeah. 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 You know, that would actually be really interesting. Last Repair yeah. Shop is complete in it, mm-hmm. it, it as it's as it, um, its own entity. So. Nana and Waipo are going to have a 10-part series on um, Bravo, so there's more to come for that. It's interesting. I think it was, the other than Nana and Waipo, was the shortest one, uh, The Island in Between. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it probably could have stood to be a little bit longer because there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, Nana and Waipo, is that Disney Plus? Yes. I was just going to say, all of these are streamable. Um, Nana and Waipo is on Disney Plus and Hulu. Barbara of Little Rock is on The New Yorker, so I guess you have to get past The New Yorker paywall, but it's there. Island in Between is New York Times, same deal. Last Repair Shop is on Disney Plus and Hulu also. It's a Searchlight production, and ABC's Book Banning is on Paramount Plus. So go put those streaming services to work. Um, all right, let's end by talking about the animated shorts, none of which are Pixar or Disney or um, easy to watch really at all, as far as I can tell. So hopefully you go catch it in your local theater. Um, not quite as grim as some of these lineups have been before. Like there, there's a couple years where you watch the animated shorts. You're like, oh, you couldn't show <laughs> any of these to a child. Um, good, good, solid number of those this year. Um, yeah. I think the simplest one is my favorite, which is our uniform, um, which is this yeah. fascinating uh, animation uh, stop motion thing about uniforms that girls wear in Iran. Um, and it's very short. It's about eight minutes long. Um, but I wonder if anyone else had a, a personal favorite. My personal favorite is, I think, the weirdest one. And it's it's not even it's one of the commended ones, the Wild Summon, which is like I, I watched it twice. I, I'm like fascinated by this film and, and I have a lot of questions uh, for the, the filmmakers. Which movie? While it was one of the commended ones. Yeah, they, they, were like, they, we, they put two in the program that are commended. Yeah, yeah. I, I did see that. Kara, I commend you for watching the commended one. <laughs> <laughs> I did it was, not. I was just kind of stopped like in my watching kind of like, what, what, what is the movie? It's, it's like a little sci-fi, a little fantasy with a 
pretend nature doc happening. Anyway, um, but back to the ones that actually are in competition. I think I agree with what you said, Katie, in, in our uniform, because it's beautifully done. Animation is unique, I think. Uh, and it's really informative without being super depressing. You know, I mm-hmm. think it's it does a good great job of shining a light on a different part of life, a different slice of life in a beautiful way. I feel like it's going to be lettered to a pig. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, it's 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 weirder than I thought it would be, mm-hmm. um, and reveals itself in in interesting and I found surprising ways. Um, it it will I think be confusing to some people. It was very actually. confusing to me. I yeah, honestly yeah. still don't know what it's about. So maybe we'll offline. Yeah. But like, I, I think in, in the same way though that like look. For some reason, if your film, your contender, has the Holocaust as a central component, the Academy is more likely to embrace that is, it. It's it, is, just, it is still somehow true, even, you know, however many you know, years later. We have later. the zone of interest. As I have said many times on this podcast, it is amazing that that movie is nominated as much as it is. And yeah. I think it's because of the subject. Uh, and this is another movie that is far artier than I think what they typically go for, but um, it, it has that immediate, you have that immediate sense of importance and gravity mm-hmm. because of what it's about. It's really beautifully made. The sound design is really interesting. So I think it will win. Um, and maybe that's slightly cynical, but I also would say it was probably my favorite, or at least the most, I thought, most ambitious. I think I'm even more cynical than than you. I mean, are we forgetting last year that the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse won this category? Was that the order? I don't remember the order uh, at all. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the Wikipedia. So to my mind then, how does War is Over, inspired by the music of John and Yoko, yes, not win? Yes, yes, yes. And they were, they've been all over, too. They've been all over. It also won the Annie over the weekend. Oh, see? I didn't yeah. realize That's that. the one thing. It happened the one time I opened up uh, Twitter. Uh, uh, yeah, that the movie. Were in there. It's like it's too soon after All Quiet on the Western Front for that movie. <laughs> I think I was not yeah. prepared to go back into trench warfare, um, but it, you know, it it has uh, big feelings to it more than any of the other ones. Which Richard, you might have a point there. And John Lennon and Yoko Ono are credited in it <laughs> as inspiring it, and <laughs> they're, they're the first title that you see. Yeah, it's produced by one of their kids, and. Uh, I just, yeah, I feel like that one is just going to kind of check a lot of boxes. Um, But yeah, if they go the more arty route, letter to a pig. Uh, 95 Senses from the makers of Napoleon Dynamite, Oscar Mm -hmm. nominees now. Mm -hmm. Um, That was an interesting, quirky one, but I think it's Mm -hmm. maybe a little too odd to, to, to catch the attention of the voters. I did like it. Tim Blake Nelson's voice performance is really I liked it too. Yes, me too. Uh, we didn't talk about Pachyderm, uh, which is kind of like dreamy and beautiful and then very disturbing when you kind of realize what the story is about. Again, a common theme in short films. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I mean, all of these, I say this every year, like the different styles of animation and learning what you can do kind of all over again with this medium is constantly fascinating. So seeing them all five of these so close together is fantastic. That that was what I loved about our uniform, too, mm-hmm. was the way that it, it yeah. really used the form to kind of enhance the story it was telling. I thought it was really effective. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It, they all do seem very different in their animation, I think, which is nice. Yeah. You know, for, for people that are not as familiar with the category or the art form to just get a slice. People that are only going to see Disney and Pixar movies, right? It's nice to see. Yeah. Well, it's why every year, like, I just really encourage people to seek all of these out. Like, they're in theaters are not all so long this year. Like, I think you could really knock them out in a pretty solid afternoon at your local theater. Um, the animated tours, like I said, like, most of them I don't think are available online, so you really do have to go out to the theater. So um, as we were just saying, there's not really anything else good in theaters. So go see the shorts. You'll be glad yeah. that you did. So David and Katie, you're saying Letter to a Pig and Richard. I think you have a strong case for War I think War I'm is siding over. with Richard, honestly, on War is Over. It's the one that looks most like a Pixar movie, except there's like blood oh, and guns and yeah. stuff. But like, <laughs> but the people look like Pixar people. They do. You're right. Thomas Newman composed the score. Uh, he's in yeah. many oh, Pixar dang. movies. But is, but does that make it too much of a ringer like what, what Henry Sugar? You know, like maybe oh. people are going to want to try to find the artier thing and then let it to a pig, which has like really, you know, pertinent subject matter, whatever. Like, I, I don't know. I think this is maybe me giving away my opinion of War is Over, but I am choosing to pick the movie that I think deserves it. Ah, okay. 
It's okay to give away your opinions on the on the shorts for people who watch all the shorts with us. That's that's what they earn. So it's true. As I, I know, but it really didn't get us uh, very far with boy, fox, mole. No, no, no. boy, mole, fox, horse. <laughs> I Big. still remember the derision in Richard's voice last year when he quoted it and was like, "What do you want to be when you grow up? To be kind." Oh, God. <laughs> Just the worst I have to go Oscar back and listen to that year. one. Yeah. <laughs> That was that was a beloved moment. So again, I'm going to warn everyone. We usually get these wrong, um, and I'm not sure that's going <laughs> yeah. to change this year. We'll so do... <laughs> time well spent. <laughs> we'll do our predictions later on. Yeah. Before we sum it up, David, because again, I'm I am very not well versed in how the the machinations of the category. You said it's an opt in. What does that mean to the layperson? It's actually more opt out um, because Academy members can basically say that they haven't watched the movies and therefore not vote for them, um, which some of them don't. And so you get a panel like uh, system of people who are more, I don't say rigorously, but more, you know, they they will have watched them closer to voting most likely and, and will be more considered in the way that they vote for them. And so a little bit more personality comes out of those picks, yeah. um, but also sometimes not the best choices. But is there anything stopping anyone from like voting and not having watched them but voting for Wes Anderson anyway because they want Wes Anderson to win an Oscar? No, and that is one of the unique things about this year, right? Yeah. Uh, We don't really know how that will change things. So that may very well happen. Yeah. Uh, Well, we'll have our uh, formal predictions for this and all the other categories in a few weeks, but um, hopefully everybody goes and watches these in the meantime and then tell tell us how wrong we're going to get our predictions. (laughs) This is the tradition. That does it for this week's show. We will be back next week. We're going to do our annual uh, Oscars flashback, talking about the 2004 Oscars, the the Return of the King Oscars, for those of you who remember back that far. So um, prepare, watch your clips, get your New Zealand accents ready. Uh, It's going to be a really fun time. Uh, Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on social media at VF Awards Insider. I'm also out there at Katie Rich and Richard. At Boy Mole Fox Horse. (laughs) (laughs) And David. At War is Over. (laughs) And and Kara. I don't have anything cute or clever, (laughs) but I I appreciate you all. Uh, Kara J. Warner. (laughs) Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for what we hope to hear from the Academy when they announce next year's Oscar host goes to Kara Warner. Benedict Cumberbatch in drag. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.